Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you to everybody who has taken part already uh, this morning. We're, we're coming now to the very end of our uh, journey through the book of Jonah. Um, we, say, we said, I think, at the very beginning, this is a book about a big fish, a grumpy prophet, and a God who has compassion on every creature on this earth. Um, and, and last time, a couple of weeks ago, we were thinking about that God of compassion. And this week, we're really going to zoom in and focus on the grumpy prophet. Uh, so we're going to read again the final chapter of Jonah, but this time our focus is really on Jonah. Um, and I think this is where we really come to the heart of the sting of the challenge of this book. Um, so let's really focus on Jonah uh, as we read and uh, read uh, through Jonah chapter four. It says this, uh, just after God uh, relents from uh, destroying Nineveh, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there and he sat under, under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the, the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Let's zoom in. Uh, on Jonah, the grumpy prophet. Uh, there's lots of people who've kind of painted or drawn uh, this picture of Jonah in this chapter under the plant. This is maybe one of my favorites that captures a bit of the, that, that grumpiness and anger and sullenness of Jonah. Um, I guess I wanna maybe, maybe start off by just mentioning three small points in passing from this chapter. And then I wanna really get to the main heart uh, of the chapter and the whole book. Um, so three really quick things. Uh, just to dash through at the beginning. Uh, first one is this, God appointed, it says, a plant, and then God appointed a worm, and then God appointed a wind. Um, I find that language really uh, striking. Uh, sometimes we talk about a divine appointment with another person where we meet somebody and we think God kind of arranged that meeting. Uh, but it kind of seems like in this chapter, Jonah has a divine appointment 
with a plant and then a worm and then a wind. Um, and earlier in the book, it uses the same language in saying God appointed a fish uh, for Jonah. Um, and it just makes me wonder, I wonder how many small things in the course of my days uh, I miss because I'm not paying attention that have been appointed or arranged by my loving father. Um, and I wonder, could I have my eyes more wide open uh, to notice those things, those appointments uh, in my day? So that's one quick thing uh, just to, to note on the way through. Second one, um, Jonah's reaction whenever the plant withers um, is so extreme. He says, he asks that he might die. Um, and every time I read it, um, Jonah's reaction to the plant withering kind of makes me laugh because he's just so grumpy and whiny and kind of self-pitying and pathetic. But it's also a kind of uncomfortable laughter, I think, because his reaction is so recognizable. It's so human. The plant was given to him as a gift that he didn't work for or earn or even ask for. Um, and yet he just kind of took it and enjoyed it and didn't even give thanks, had no gratitude really for the plant. But when the plant was taken away, he just becomes this puddle of gloom and self-pity and per me and why is this happening to me? Um, and I just, there's an uncomfortable recognition there for me. I wonder, do you recognize it? Do you ever behave like that? Um, just be honest with yourself uh, about that. So that's the second quick thing. Third quick thing is this. Um, this question that God asks Jonah twice, do you do well to be angry? Um, and I, I think that is such a helpful and necessary question for us. Um, anytime our anger flares up, and there's all kinds of things that can make us angry, but it's good to allow God to search our hearts. Um, it feels to me right now like people are really angry about a lot of things in our culture, and some of them are really big things, and some of them are quite small things. Uh, and there is such a thing as righteous anger, but as human beings, we're just, we're not very good at it, at righteous anger. Even when we start off with justified anger, it gets contaminated by all kinds of other things, by meanness and pride and jealousy and fear and all kinds of ugly stuff. Uh, and so I think we do well every time our anger flares to allow space for God to ask us this question. Um, do you do well to be angry? And usually my first reaction is like Jonah, Jonah's, yes, I do well to be angry. <laughs> um, and it's maybe worth asking it again and just allowing God to search our hearts. As the psalmist says, search me, O God, know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a really good question. Do you do well to be angry? Um, but now I want to come uh, to the heart of the matter and the real sting and challenge of this chapter and this book. Um, when, when someone is disproportionately angry about a small thing like a plant, it usually means that their real anger is about something else. Um, what is the real heart of Jonah's anger? Um, and it's, it's this right at the beginning. Um, he is angry with God for showing mercy to his enemies. When God turned from his anger and decided not to destroy Nineveh, it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. Um, I like the way the NIV uh, translates this uh, simply like this. 
that to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he was angry. Um, and I want to, before we kind of pick this apart a wee bit, um, I want to first of all give Jonah some serious credit for his honesty. Because um, I think there are lots of times when we might feel angry with God uh, because of things that have happened to us or things that have happened to other people we care about or things that happen in our world or because of prayers that don't seem to be answered or for lots of reasons. But we often feel we're not allowed to be angry with God and so we bottle it up and it ends up leaking, leaking out all over the place. And the people around us get hurt because we project the anger onto them. And actually it would be far healthier to kind of have it out with God, um, as so many faithful believers in the Bible do. If you think about Moses, or you think about David, or you think about Jeremiah, and so many others, it's far better to come to God and say, this seems wrong to me, and I'm feeling angry, and talk it through with God. Um, as a wise woman I know likes to say, God is big enough to cope with our little fists beating against his chest. Um, and so credit to Jonah, uh, for, his, for expressing his anger to God. Uh, but I want to think about this. Why does Jonah think that God is wrong? It seems wrong to God that God would show mercy to the Ninevites. And I want to try and understand a little bit, rather than just criticize Jonah, uh, try and understand why he thought that. Uh, I want to suggest that, that there are maybe two reasons we can, we can think about. Uh, one of them is kind of a political reason, and the other one kind of theological and the political one is this. Uh, oh, I had it already up on the screen. Uh, that it's a kind of uh, patriotism gone bad. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, if you remember when we looked at a map um, a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, um, the Assyrian Empire is this huge, terrifying uh, military power that's spreading and kind of gobbling up smaller nations. And it's moving closer and closer to Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. It's a huge threat to Jonah and his people. Um, and Jonah, I think, we can understand as a kind of patriot. Um, he cares about his nation and his people. And I, I, I imagine part of Jonah's thinking is if God would destroy the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, it would make Assyria much weaker and Israel much safer. Um, and so, I wonder, I think for Jonah, there's a kind of patriotism here that we can understand, but patriotism can, go, can turn bad. Um, there's a reminder here of something really important that there's nothing wrong with loving your country and your people. That's very natural. But when that love of country becomes our God, it can actually become something dark and demonic that makes us hate the others. And it prevents us from carrying God's blessing to the nations and carrying good news of great joy for all people. And I think in Northern Ireland, we need to be reminded of this again and again, that loyalty to your nation, your flag, your tribe um, can actually become something blasphemous and demonic when it takes the place of God himself in our affections. And I'm saying that very strongly, but deliberately. Um, Patriotism can turn really ugly. Um, what about the theological reason? Um, uh, it might be, we might say it this way, uh, that it comes from a one-eyed reading of the Bible. One of the great dangers in reading the Bible 
Um, is that we read it with one eye, that we pick and choose the bits that suit us. Um, I think Jonah, Jonah would have had access to the older parts of uh, the Old Testament. Um, I think Jonah would have loved the parts of the Hebrew scriptures which talked about the people of Israel as God's special people, God's chosen people. Uh, so maybe the most famous uh, kind of verse in that regard in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, um, this beautiful passage where God uh, says to Israel, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. And he goes on to say, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful verse, beautiful truth. Because um, it's really nice to be special and treasured and chosen, right? Um, Jonah, I think, would have liked to stay among his own people, helping them live into that special identity as God's special people. But I think Jonah had missed another thread running all through the scriptures. He was reading with one eye. Um, and the other thread starts with God's words to Abraham, which we talked about at the start of this series, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That the blessing is not just to be enjoyed by God's special people, but it's to be shared and given away to the ends of the earth. Um, Jonah didn't get it. I think of all the prophets, the one who expressed this most vividly was Isaiah. Um, and in Isaiah 49, again, a beautiful passage, he talks about uh, God speaks uh, to Israel and says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's too small a thing just to focus on Israel being blessed. But he says, I will also make you a light for the nations so my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing just to focus on being God's special people. Um, and again, I find myself thinking there's something here we need to be reminded of often uh, because we can easily become comfortable and complacent and kind of enjoying the privileges of being God's special people. And we can kind of become the frozen chosen, turned in on ourselves and oblivious to the world outside the window. And I think we need to be reminded that's too small a thing to just enjoy God's blessings for ourselves. Our calling always is to share his light with the world. Let's not read the Bible with one eye. Let's make sure we hear all of that truth. Um, but now I want to come uh, to the most uncomfortable question of all. Um, and I want to suggest if we don't wrestle with this really deeply, we haven't really heard the challenge of the book of Jonah. And it's this question, who are the Ninevites for you? Um, or maybe to, to put it another way, who are those people for you who you find it really, really hard to want to see them receive mercy and blessing and forgiveness? Um, who are the people who make you most angry? Who are the people who make your blood boil, who get your goat, who get under your skin, who push your buttons? Who are the people you most despise for whom you feel contempt? Um, and I guess I want to say this. It, I, I think that's a really hard question to face honestly. Because um, if I was to ask you, is there anyone out there who's beyond the reach of God's compassion and love and grace? We, we're all so well trained 
to give the right answer, we'd all say, of course, God's love is for everyone. And we know as good Christians, we're not meant to despise anybody or hate anybody or have contempt for anybody. So I think we find it hard to be honest with ourselves about this. Um, I want to suggest we have to actually wrestle with this as a practical question and not a theoretical one. In other words, if God asked you to go to those people and not only tell them the gospel in words, but embody it in your actions and show them that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, would you be able to do it? Would you be willing to go there to those people? It's really important that that embodying of the gospel, because when, when God wanted to show his love for us, he didn't shout it from a distance or kind of drop tracts from heaven uh, or even send somebody else. He came down and lived among us and moved into the neighborhood and touched those no one else would touch and ate with those no one else would eat with. And he bled and he died for all of us while we were still his enemies. So his love is embodied in flesh and blood. And so ours has to be as well. Um, would you be willing to go and live the gospel for those people? Um, I, I'm kind of feeling the, the, uh, the limitations as a preacher of like, how do we get this under our skin? How do we allow this to really challenge us? And I want to share the words of a song and then a couple of stories to maybe try and help us get this under our skin. Um, I want to read the words of a song um, I first heard when I was, when I was a teenager and it's kind of stayed with me all these years. Um, and it's a song that deliberately expresses the shocking, scandalous nature of the grace of God. Um, the, the, the heart of the song, the chorus that's repeated, is an invitation to everybody everywhere to breathe deep the breath of God. Right? God's invitation. Come and, come and receive everything that I want to give you. Not only forgiveness, but also blessing and favor and uh, the breath of God and the spirit of God. Um, but the song simply lists all kinds of categories of people. Um, and I, I'm aiming here deliberately to get under your skin and make you a bit mad. And I want you to listen as you listen to the words of the song for the ones that really get, get at you. Um, so let me, let me read uh, the words of this song. Breathe deep the breath of God. Politicians, morticians, Philistines, homophobes, skinheads, deadheads, tax evaders, street kids, alcoholics, workaholics, wise guys, dimwits, blue collars, white collars, warmongers, peaceniks. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Suicidals, rock idols, shut-ins, dropouts, friendless, homeless, penniless, depressed, Presidents, residents, foreigners and aliens, dissidents, feminists, xenophobes and chauvinists. Breathe deep, breathe deep the breath of God. Evolutionists, creationists, perverts, slumlords, deadbeats, athletes, Protestants and Catholics. Housewives, neophytes, pro-choice, pro-life, misogynists, monogamists, philanthropists, blacks and whites. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Police, obese, lawyers and government, sex offenders, tax collectors, war vets, rejects, 
atheists, scientists, racists, sadists, biographers, photographers, artists, pornographers. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Gays and lesbians, demagogues and thespians, the disabled preachers, doctors and teachers, meat eaters, wife beaters, judges and juries, long hair, no hair, everybody, everywhere. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Um, I wonder even as I read that, did you find yourself at some point saying, if you're honest within yourself, this seems wrong to me. They should not receive mercy or grace or forgiveness. I want to get off this gospel train at that point. Um, if the gospel doesn't disturb us at some level, we haven't really heard it. But this is for everybody everywhere. Uh, let me share two stories. Uh, my grandfather, who I talk about often, um, my grandfather grew up uh, in the village of Carnlock in the Glens of Antrim. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about the place where you grew up. Some people love the place they grew up. Some people are ambivalent about it. Some people can't wait to get out. Um, when I say my grandfather loved Carnlock and the Glens, I mean like he, he loved that place. Uh, so he literally wrote songs expressing his love for Carnlock. There is a place I dream of, the place I love the most. It bears the name of Carnlock along the Antrim coast, right? He, he loved Carnlock and he would gladly have spent his days there loving God and loving his neighbours and sharing good news. But then God asked him to arise and go with his young family to the ends of the earth, to Japan. And this was the late 1940s. It was just a few years after the end of the Second World War. And lots of people tried to talk him out of going. Um, and I, I've wondered often why. I, I'm sure it was partly concerned for his safety and the safety of his young family in a, a war-ravaged nation. Um, some people felt he didn't have the education and the skills to learn Japanese and work in such a difficult environment. Um, but I also find myself wondering if there was a deeper reason, because the memory of the war was still very raw. Uh, and there had been many stories from the Japanese prisoner of war camps of unspeakable cruelty. And maybe for some, there was a feeling that it was too soon to carry a message of forgiveness and mercy to those people. And I'm not saying that to be critical of those who maybe tried to talk him out of going. It's really, really hard to wish blessing on your enemies when they have hurt your people. Um, but my grandfather went with his young family. He didn't cycle all the way to Japan, but there he is pulling his family on the bike. And he not only preached a message of God's mercy with everything that was in him, but he and my grandmother embodied it in their lives and they lived among their neighbours and they loved the Japanese people. There's my grandfather holding me in his arms with my brother and two of our little Japanese friends. They embodied the gospel and lived, shared their life. And when my dad and I travelled to those villages a couple of years ago, um, we met these beautiful Japanese people whose faces lit up with joy when they heard the name Mullen or Mudan-san, as they say, because that name had been a blessing to them all these years. And even though they're dead now, they still call my grandparents Mama and Dada. 
and they sang to the tune my grandfather had taught them that God so loved the world that he gave his only son because my, my grandfather and my grandmother didn't just preach that or just sing it, but they embodied it in their lives. Um, one more story, Corrie ten Boom, um, I think was one of the most remarkable Christians of modern times. Um, her family helped Dutch Jews escape the Nazis, um, but they were eventually caught and Corrie was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp with her sister Bessie. And they suffered unimaginable things, but they held on to hope and faith in God in a really remarkable way. Um, Bessie eventually died in the camp. But it's this bit of the story I want to share several years after the war was over. Um, Corrie ten Boom was speaking about her experiences to an audience in Munich. And at the end of the service, one of her former SS guards approached her. I want you to imagine this, one of, one of those who had been a guard in the camp. And he said to her, how grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. And I love Corrie ten Boom's honesty in that story um, because she's saying this is not a light thing or an easy thing to go to the Ninevites. There's something here that involves a kind of death. There's something here that requires supernatural, miraculous grace. But if we're willing to make that move towards the other and ask for grace as we do it, then we'll experience and see amazing and beautiful things. Um, and of course, I've used a couple of really big examples there. Most of the time, it's not going to be about God asking you to forgive those who murdered your sister or to get up and cross the ocean to the other side of the earth. Most of the time, it's going to be about crossing the room or crossing the street or crossing to the other side of town to those people who just irritate you or offend you or get under your skin, carrying and embodying this good news. Um, we're near the end. Um, one, of, one of my favorite movies of uh, recent times is the movie Inception. Some people love it, some people hate it. Um, it ends up being a story within a story within a story within a story, and it kind of blows your, your mind a little bit. Um, I'm hopefully not spoiling anybody's fun uh, by saying part of, the, part of what I love about Inception is the very end where this top is spinning on a table, 
and everything in the story depends on whether the top is going to fall or not. But as the top spins um, and spins and you watch to see what will happen, the credits roll <laughs> and everybody in the cinema groans or uh, whatever. Um, what makes the ending of the book of Jonah, I think, both a bit strange but also very powerful is that there's no tidy ending. Um, God asks Jonah a question. Should I not have compassion on the people of Nineveh and even the cattle? And then the credits roll. Um, we don't get to hear Jonah's answer. We don't know how the story ends for Jonah. Does he get up and go into the city to share good news? Or does he stay angry and self-righteous and alone? Um, we don't know. Me of the end of the story that Jesus told in Luke 15. Uh, do you remember when the, when the prodigal son has returned and has been welcomed with a party? Um, and the, to the older brother, this seemed very wrong. And he's very angry. But the story ends with the father going out to his angry son and inviting him to come and join the party. And we're not told how the older son responds. Will he go? Or will he stay alone and angry and uh, self-righteous? And in both cases, in Jonah and in the prodigal son, I think the unfinished ending turns the camera on us and asks us to write our own ending with our lives. It's asking you and I, what kind of story are you going to live? We can stay where we are in our pride and our self-righteousness, dividing the world into us and them, the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, people like us and those people over there. And we'll stay frozen in anger and sad and lonely. Or we can lay down our pride and we can admit once and for all that there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us are justified freely by his grace. All of us need help. All of us need forgiveness. All of us need mercy. All of us need healing. And all of us are freely offered it in Jesus. And then we can go and join our gracious father in his mission in going to share this grace freely with all the people, even those people, especially those people. Um, and maybe just to challenge you as we finish and challenge myself, um, I, I don't think it's an accident that we've been studying the book of Jonah at this time. Uh, I find myself really thinking this week, I think God is wanting to prepare us. I don't know what for, but I think he's wanting to prepare us, maybe as a church, maybe as individuals, to arise out of our place of comfort and complacency, where we're having a nice time with our people and to go and embody his compassion and grace for those people. Um, and I don't know what that's going to look like for you or for me, but I wonder, would you join me in just having your eyes open and asking God, where are those places where he's asking us to do that? Are you ready? Are you willing to go and embody grace for those people? Um, we can stay where we are with people just like us, people who are really easy to love and like and enjoying being God's special people and all his blessings. But the challenge I really felt this week is that's too small a thing for the children of God. You're made for something much harder and much more costly, but also much more glorious and beautiful and joyful. I'm going to give the last word uh, 
to Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter refers back to those words from Exodus that uh, we read earlier on, and he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? So that you can sit and enjoy the niceness of that, so that you can feel superior to those people over there. No, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So you can share light, so you can share blessing, so you can share joy, so you can share grace. Um, Let's pray as we finish. Then we're going to sing one more song. Let's pray. Father, this is a really um, uncomfortably challenging theme uh, that the book of Jonah brings us to. And I want to pray you would give each of us courage not to run away from this, um, not to get busy today with other things and forget about this challenge, but I want to pray that each of us would be able to have the courage just to spend a little time in quiet in your presence, asking you to search our hearts and show us where there is pride and prejudice and self-righteousness that we maybe keep very well hidden. Show us where there is contempt for other people. Show us who those, those people are for us, who we find it really hard to love, who we find it really hard to wish for mercy and compassion and forgiveness and blessing for. Father, would you show us these things And then would you pour into our hearts your supernatural grace and enable us to love the unlovable and enable us not just to love with words or from a distance, but to go and embody that love in our lives, to go and be with people, to go and eat with people, to go and welcome people in your name, to share a message of grace through Jesus, to show that grace in our lives. Father, this is really difficult. Help us to weigh it and count the cost. But I pray that that, uh, as we wrestle today, there would be a response in our hearts that would say, this is tough, but I am willing. And I want to go. I want to arise and go and be a source of light and blessing um, for all people. Uh, And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.